your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12 as we return to our study of this the gospel. We've been in, haven't been here for a little while. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 45 uh, today. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Some of us are masters of excuses by which we avoid things that we don't like. And there's no place where people are so skilled in making excuses as in our relationship or our lack of relationship to the Lord. In our text this morning, we learned that our skillful evasive reasoning often reflects the same old worn out reasoning, the same old worn out excuses used for generations. Here Jesus addresses some of those common evasions. Let me read it. Verse 38 down to verse 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. This text, Jesus has hard words for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law which arose out of their constant evasion and opposition toward him. There seem to be three things for us to learn as we try to understand this and apply it to ourselves. So three points. The first is this. You have plenty of evidence to believe in Jesus. You have plenty of evidence to believe in Jesus. You know, we live in a culture which glorifies doubt which disdains convictions based on faith, which claims only to act on cold, objective evidence, and often says proudly, you can't know anything for sure about God, there's no evidence. That excuse, I just don't have enough evidence to believe, was common in Jesus' day too. That seems to be where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are coming from. But God says to them and to us, you're kidding yourself. What God has revealed is sufficient for us to know the truth. Indeed, our continual demand for more evidence is a way that we suppress what we do know. That demand for more miraculous signs is just an excuse. We have plenty of evidence to believe in Jesus. That's what's going on in verses 38 to 40. 
the Pharisees and teachers of the law want Jesus to perform a miraculous sign. But that demand ignores the volume of evidence which they already have seen. Looking back to chapters 8 and 9, we have quite a list of miracles that Jesus has done publicly. Jesus cleansed a leper. He uh, healed a centurion's servant from a distance. He raised up Peter's sick mother-in-law and many others who came to our house that evening. He stilled the wind and the waves and the storm. He delivered a demon-possessed man living among the tombs. He healed a paralyzed man. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He restored a woman weak from 12 years of illness. He gave sight to two blind men. He restored both hearing and speech to a deaf mute. And most recently, he delivered a demoniac who was both blind and deaf. But all of that was apparently insufficient for the scribes and Pharisees. They wanted a sign from heaven. That's how they perceived miraculous signs. They were supernatural acts performed on command. So according to them, all those previous miracles didn't mean a thing. Folks, that's how unbelief behaves. It doesn't want to examine the evidence already given. Unbelief wants magic tricks on demand. But Jesus doesn't produce those signs. He ministers to the real needs of hurting people, sometimes in supernatural ways. But he doesn't do circus tricks for the entertainment of those who hate him. So Jesus refused to give them another sign, noting their wicked unbelief and their unfaithfulness. He refused, except, he said, for the sign of Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Now that raises a controversial subject. And some of the commentaries I read on this took almost the whole time to talk about that statement about Jonah. We're not going to do that. Jesus treated what happened to Jonah as a foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection. But the Pharisees could not have understood that. It only made sense after Jesus rose from the dead. So perhaps this sign that Jesus talks about is somewhat like the sign that God gave to King Ahaz back in Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz didn't believe, and so God gave him no miraculous sign. Instead, God gave him a promise. He said, a virgin will conceive, which meant nothing to Ahaz. But it was powerful evidence when Jesus was later born of a virgin. In similar way, when Jesus rose from the dead, even the Pharisees remembered this prediction and they wanted a guard posted at his tomb. But you see, the problem was not what the Pharisees claimed, too little evidence. The problem was their refusal to examine what they had. The problem was that even in the face of overwhelming Facts, they found a way to suppress it all and continue in their unbelief. And what about you? Are you sitting smugly indifferent before God saying, prove it? If so, the Bible would say he has. 
Your problem is not a lack of evidence, but your refusal to go where it leads you. I probably told you sometime in the years I've been here about my Air Force friend many years ago named Nick. He was a crew chief on, their, on my airplane. One night we got into quite a discussion where Nick claimed to be an atheist. After listening for a while, I said to him, you know, Nick, you're not really an atheist. In your heart, you know God exists. But it is easier for you to say that you don't believe in him than it would be to admit that he exists and therefore you owe him your allegiance. Nick got quiet and he thought for a minute. And he said, you know, you're right. And he got up and walked out of the room and never talked about it again. But in that moment of truth, Nick admitted he had enough evidence to believe. He just refused. And this morning, God would say the same thing to you. You have plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus. Then as we move on to verses 41 and 42, we find a second point. God holds you accountable for what you know. God holds you accountable for what you know. Here Jesus raises the issue of God's judgment. Now if you talk about, try to talk about God judging or holding people accountable in any way, you will inevitably, inevitably uh, encounter resistance for people think God cannot judge, that would be unfair. Some scoff at the whole idea of God judging because they are so confident that they are righteous. Uh, how could God possibly sit in judgment or find any fault of me. Others scoff at God judging, uh, saying, well, I just can't believe in a God who would condemn a poor, innocent, primitive person just because they never heard of Jesus. But no matter who it is, God judges people based on the truth they know. So God does not condemn primitive people for rejecting Jesus when they've never heard of him. He holds them accountable for violating whatever knowledge of God he has of right and wrong that God has given them. And neither does God excuse those who know a lot, but don't practice it. He expects much from those who have been given much. God holds everyone accountable for what he knows. So in verses 41 and 42, Jesus applies this truth about how, how God judges. First, he raises this issue on what basis did God judge the people of ancient Nineveh? Well, what did they know? They didn't know much. All they knew was that a strange man named Jonah was coughed out on the beach by a large fish. And, and, and then with, with unbelievable conviction, he went through the city warning everyone that in 40 days, God is going to destroy us if we don't repent. So they repented, and God showed mercy. And then, what about the queen of ancient Sheba? What did she know? Well, she had heard about the wisdom of Israel's king, Solomon. And so she came to see and to hear. And when she did, she was so impressed, she ended up saying, blessed be Yahweh, your God. In other words, she acted responsibly in light of what she heard 
What she knew of the Lord, she praised him. But compare those responses of people who knew so little, compare those responses to that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The evidence they had seen and heard was massive. They had witnessed the Son of God walking among them and teaching and healing, doing miraculous deeds. The evidence which Jesus presented in their, in, before their face was greater than anything Jonah ever did. The wisdom that Je- with which Jesus spoke was wiser than anything the Queen of Sheba ever heard from Solomon. Nevertheless, the scribes and Pharisees did not repent. They did not stand in awe of Christ's wisdom. They just demanded another sign. And so Jesus said to them on the day of judgment, the people of Nineveh, who knew almost nothing, the queen of Sheba, who'd only heard a little bit, they will stand up and testify against you leaders of Israel. For you saw and you heard so much more than they did. And yet they repented and you refused. You see, God holds people accountable for what they know. And folks, for us, this truth is even more pointed. For we stand on the other side of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension to glory. We know about the coming of his Holy Spirit and the writing and preserving of the scripture and the impact of the gospel has had on the world. We, 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 know, we know a lot. And folks, God holds us accountable for all that we know. And Jesus says, to whom much is given from him, much will be required. You and I have been given so very much. Much will be required of us. We dare not think We can sidestep God's judgment. We are accountable to him. Finally, there's a third point in the last few verses, verses 43 to 45. And the third point is this. Follow Jesus or you will be enslaved by Satan. Follow Jesus or you will be enslaved by Satan. Of all the excuses we use to evade responsibility, none is more popular than this. Well, I'm just not ready to commit. You know, I I like to retain, I'd like to uh, remain neutral in these things. For some reason, this is extremely attractive to us. It allows us to remain autonomous, answerable only to ourselves. It, It bolsters the sense that I am the ultimate sovereign I decide for myself. I depend upon myself. And I'm answerable to no one but myself. This desire for neutrality is common in some form, probably to all mankind, including the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day who were unwilling to commit to anyone, to anything they heard, but themselves and their self-made system of religion. But in our text, Jesus destroys this dream of neutrality that we have. Earlier in this chapter, he had spoken of snatching people out of Satan's dominion and setting them free to follow him as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
Now in these verses, Jesus describes those who seem to have been set free, but stopped short of following Christ, God's king. And what he describes is terrifying. A wandering spirit, evil spirit, finds the person's house unoccupied. That is, he finds this person uncommitted. And so the evil spirit gathers up a whole horde of evil spirits, more wicked than himself, and they all move in and turn this man's life into a den of demons. The point is pretty clear. You will follow Christ, our liberator, or you will be enslaved by Satan's tyranny. Either we are set free by Christ Jesus, filled with his spirit, living under his authority, worshiping and serving him, or we are sold into sin, walking according to the course of this evil world, under the dominion of darkness, living in bondage to Satan and his evil forces. There is no neutral ground. Now, to hear such talk sounds ridiculous. Talk of evil spirits and the like, taking up residence. But when we look at the experience of Israel, of which these men, these scribes and Pharisees, were the leaders, we have to admit Jesus spoke the truth here. Israel had been through a certain cleansing, the widespread spiritual uh, awakening, a revival under the ministry of John the baptizer, as he called people to repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And then the Messiah arrived, doing mighty works through the power of the Holy Spirit. And many responded. But some were looking for something else. They were seeking more evidence. They wanted time to be neutral. Something less demanding than this radical, life-changing way of life that Jesus suggested. So the Lord warned them, there's no such place to stand. Reject God's king and his kingdom and Satan's tyranny will prove worse than ever. And folks, that's what happened. They ended up rejecting, the scribes and Pharisees ended up rejecting Jesus and eventually handed him over to be crucified. But it did not go well for Israel. Only a few years later in 70 AD, the Romans raised the city, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. From then till now, the people have known little peace. They've been maligned and menaced and enslaved and massacred. Yes, God has saved a remnant of them and he will save more. But in general, Israel's status is worse than it was. And folks, today the same Jesus delivers the same dire warning to us. He has come that we might set free, be set free from sin to live in fellowship with him as members of his body and citizens of, his, of heaven. But there is no neutral alternative. To reject Jesus is to invite the evil one to take control and reestablish his work in us. We will follow Christ Jesus or we will be enslaved by Satan. Frankly, this isn't a very pleasant text. We're more accustomed to hearing Jesus speak words of compassion and 
healing, good news of forgiveness and new life. And that's how Jesus talks to those who are broken and desperate for mercy. But here Jesus is not talking to those who are broken and desperate for mercy. He's talking to the religious establishment in Israel. Leaders who were quite comfortable with the status quo. Leaders who were quite full of themselves. Leaders who were quite impressed that they are the righteous ones. And it is possible that while we love the sound of love and compassion, we have more, we look more like this group than the broken and desperate for mercy group. So Jesus confronts them with, and us with himself and challenges the excuses which we tend, behind which we tend to hide. We love to say, I need more evidence before I can believe. And Jesus says, you know enough to believe in me. Stop suppressing it and trust me. We hate being held accountable. In fact, we claim God is unfair if he judges. But like it or not, Jesus makes it clear that God holds every single one of us accountable for what we know. You will not escape his judgment. And most of all, we love to wait and see, to just remain neutral. But Jesus says there is no middle ground. As he said before, if you are not with me, you are against me. So he says bluntly, you will follow me or you will be enslaved by Satan. May God grant us the grace to hear the Savior's hard words, not just his sweet ones. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we don't like passages where you speak such hard things and such black and white issues and call us to accountable, to accountability like that. We like to assume that uh, we're beyond that. But maybe we're not, Lord. Maybe if we look real hard, we'll find that we suppress all kinds of things that we know to be true because we don't want to do them that we toy with evil things, thinking it doesn't mean anything, that really we're just remaining neutral, just plain look and see. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Lest we be like this very religious bunch of people in the past who totally missed what you're doing. While the public sinners and prostitutes understood and repented and lived. Have mercy on us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.